Good afternoon, this is Gary Kavanagh here on TRSI. Today is the 21st of the 3rd. I'm here today with my friend and colleague, as ever, your friends. Don't know why I said that, that was a bit weird, wasn't it? That was very weird. Taking the parasocial relationship to just new heights. It was weird, but not creepy. Well, that's what we're going for here, Michael. How have you been, anyway? I've been weird, but not creepy. I heard that's good. It's as good as it's going to get, Gary. So, let's crack right into it. Sunday after all. No time for rest. Because <laughs> we're all so busy. So, given the day in it, let's go right into it. Matters of religion and state. Fire ahead. I'm all curious in all ears. Would you say you're all curio? <laughs> I'm all curia. Priest gets told he will be fined for breaching COVID regulations. And this comes to, this kind of refers back to the conversation we had about the Trinity Professor of Law, Aaron Doyle, and what the actual law is in relation to religious gatherings. What I found interesting here is, of course, everyone has said there is no, you know, priests can't be jailed for doing these things. They cannot be criminally sanctioned. Here's the thing. He's, this priest has been issued with a 500 euro fine by Gareth from breaching COVID regulations. It's a priest down in um, Cavan, in one of the Cavan parishes. If he doesn't pay that fine, Michael, what happens to him? If he doesn't pay the fine, he will be in contempt of court. And if he is, he doesn't purge that contempt, he'll go to prison. Now that seems to me to be a very fine distinction. That you can't be jailed for saying mass, but you can be fined. And if you don't pay the fine, we'll jail you. Yeah, but I think it, 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 you may even be giving them too much credit here because on the first, there was a report anyway in the Irish Catholic um, by Kai, what's his name? Kai, I want to say Kai Brady. Kai Brady, I think it was, who quoted a spokeswoman from the Department of Health who told him in November 2020, holding a religious gathering is not a penal offence. No, penal doesn't. is not the same as criminal. Penal just means there is no penalty. But a priest has been fined 500 euro. That sounds like a penalty. There seems to be, his point is, there seems to be some quite some confusion going on between recommendation and laws. Now, Gary, this goes back to what we are discussing in the, uh, in the previous podcast, that uh, blog post, which is done by the professor of law in Trinity, who's saying that, as far in his opinion, there is actually effectively no law stopping the public conduct of religious services. It's interesting. Do you remember you said uh, that one of the interesting things about ISAG was uh, that, or not the sorry, not ISAG, the government rather, and this in the context of this blog report, he said he, he, you you made the point that he said that the government seems to operate in confusion, but there is rather a sense that the confusion may not be completely accidental. That in on every occasion where the government was forced to give absolute clarity to some aspect of the regulation, that when they did so, their posi the position they gave was the correct one legally, when they actually had to give some kind of a definitive statement. Now, I think it's interesting that when a, a, a spokesperson from the Department of Health was asked a specific question, the response was, holding a religious gathering is not a penal offence. And I'm wondering, is this an, another example of where, when they had to actually give an answer, they gave the correct answer, which is then has been reiterated by the position of the professor in his blog, that there is in fact no offence. It is merely a guideline, a recommendation, a public health advisory, whatever you want. But it's not actually something which can be penalised under the law. 
I'd be curious to see what happens. I mean, if he doesn't pay the fine, what happens then? Presumably, it goes to court. And then we'll see what a judge says. And I think we'd all be curious to see what a judge would say. This is the interesting thing, because the Irish Catholic reported this, and now it's been reported in the, the local paper down there, the Westmead Independent. But we don't know what he's been fined under. And here's the thing. It could be absolutely true that there's nothing, uh, no law in place that would cover religious gatherings. Yeah. But the fine doesn't have to be administered for that purpose. True. It could be for anything. And so it could, if it goes to court and he tries to make that point, it could simply be that the judge says, yes, but that's not why you're here to begin with. And so the fine still stands. Now, I mean, were that the case, that would be, I think, on the face of it, a pretty shoddy application of law. Uh, I think it'd be interesting. What I found interesting about this, kind of heartening, actually, is the number of people coming out and saying, you know what, I'm not a Catholic. I have been very critical of the, the role and the importance and the power exercised by the Catholic Church for a long time in this state. But this is feckin' ridiculous. Uh, this is just, this is going too far. We know that people have asked for uh, a number of times the empirical data on which the decision to restrict or to ban religious services has been based. The, the data which shows that churches and masses or whatever are actually, uh, uh, have been a locus of contagion and therefore uh, should be banned. I mean, there are very, very few countries, Gary, where public worship is banned. Um, we were by ourselves for a while. Then there was ourselves in Slovenia. I'm not sure Italy has gone all red, with the exception, not that this is probably of any interest to anybody, except for Sardinia. Sardinia is white. It's almost COVID-free. And Gary, it's a lovely place. And if anybody had a small private jet and they wanted to go out to Albi, I can tell you there's worse places you could be in the middle of a COVID pandemic than, than Sardinia in the spring. But that aside, my, my point is we have made a decision to ban religious services where other countries in the midst of fairly severe lockdowns have not done so. There hasn't been, so far as I'm aware, and I've looked, but maybe I just haven't found it, evidence that religious services are Dangerous. I mean, certainly nothing like as risky as supermarkets are from the last set of uh, figures regarding where infections and uh, contagion was taking place. So I, I'd, be, I'd be, again, curious to know on what basis these things were, were, these decisions were made. The Irish Catholic is saying that people close to the priest are saying he's not going to pay the fine, which means that the state will have to try and enforce it which is to say they'll have to try and most likely imprison him for refusing to pay the fine. I would imagine he will refuse to pay the fine in a way that will pretty much ensure he will have to go to prison. But here's the thing, Michael. I wonder how the average rural Fianna Fáil TD feels about uh, having to be part of a government that'll jail a priest for this. For example, if you're Neve Smith and you're a Fianna Fáil, the Fianna Fáil TD in Cavan uh, Monaghan, how delighted are you that you, under uh, a government of which you are a part, they're putting priests in prison for saying maths? 
you're doing it when public seems to be turning against the government on this, yes. or at least on their uh, perception of whether or not you can handle this, and then suddenly you're banging up priests. I don't think it's a good look. I really don't. The Fianna Fáil people I've talked to have, in general, been more supportive of lockdowns than the Fianna Gael lads. But this, I think, a lot of these people are going to have a big problem with this. I'm not surprised. I wouldn't be surprised, as, 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 as we were talking before, that uh, Fianna Fáil would, uh, the Fianna Fáil cohort would be more in favour of controls because they have the oldest uh, demographic of any of the political parties and older people are more in favour of lockdown and I suppose naturally they also have a sense of themselves as being the most people at most at risk and they're the most fearful but this is this kind the thing is about this Gary there's a kind of a there's a genetic memory involved in this isn't there this is this is mass rocks and penal times. And also the fact that it's in Cavan, you know, it's a, it's in a part of the country where these issues have a certain liveliness still about them. And I mean, you can you can do all this sort of, well, you know, it's, it's, it's not a crime to do anything with a religious ceremony. He was just fined for something else. Yeah. But I have a feeling if he's in jail, that's going to be a very hard one to start swinging. It's going to be a tough one. And uh, <laughs> I wouldn't be surprised if Neve Smith, as we were speaking, was signing a cheque for 500 euro and sending it, uh, or even a little envelope with 500 squids in cash, for so it could be anonymous, in order to pay that particular fine. Uh, I think that would be a very reasonable thing for any Fianna Fáil or Gavin Monaghan to do right now. The only thing that will be interesting about this is going to be the political party's reactions. Because you've got, um, you've got Carol Nolan down there strong independent you've got Neve Smith who isn't going to like this it'd be interesting to see how the Fine Gael lads and the Sinn Féin lads will go I'm going to assume just on historical context not going to be strong support for the um the jailing of priests for saying mass I think in an Irish context that's going to be a difficult one to it'll, it'll be a tricky one that, that's that's the sort of one they'll wheel out Neil Richmond for yeah oh, mm, I don't know Neil may not be the man to do this one no I think I think he's perfect for it <laughs> he'll be he'll be good value if nothing else. Neil is always good value. I mean, I I think you know, for for all this sort of people talking about how we can you know, allow religious services, I think we have underestimated the sheer value of just doing it anyway and ending up in jail. You know, the Church in Ireland might maybe that what it it might need right now is a couple of martyrs. Like I'd say, there's bishops looking at this and are like. This is outrageous. You know, public health. We cannot do these things. And I say, there's other bishops in Ireland looking at it and being like, "I could say a mass." I tell you, I tell you, I'm I'm absolutely certain that there are at least a couple of bishops in Ireland right now that are being sat upon by large parish priests in order to make sure they don't go out and say mass. Oh, the I'd love if they had to arrest a bishop. Oh, wouldn't that be fantastic? In full pontificals, the whole works. The the crozier, mitre crozier, the whole works on the on the steps of the cathedral. Come and take me, Caesar. Carried out into the car, a TD by the side of the church, just crying as his election hopes just crumbled. Especially, especially Easter week, 
if you were to do it, maybe <laughs> arrest him on Holy Thursday, arraign him on Good Friday. Oh, I think, oh, the the, the symbolism would be just too fantastic. Wouldn't that be just a fantastic end to Finnafall? <laughs> so then we elected Michal Martin, and things got out of hand, and then we just didn't get rid of him, and suddenly we were jailing priests on Easter, and that's how the party died. That's just you know, it just got out of hand. It wasn't so much the party dying that was worse. But it was the fact that we all end up going to hell as well. That was really upsetting. There is probably a line somewhere about that. And sorry, to move on from the hilarious matter of arresting a bishop, which will assuredly see all members of Fianna Fáil consigned to hell, to, ah, uh, you know, that old, that old regular Michael. The hell that we're already living in? Anthony Staines, one of the founders of ISAC, had a, um opinion piece in the Irish Times yesterday. It was uh, an interesting piece. It was it was the usual blend of ISAG and where they kind of subtly talk down the vaccines, but never in a way that you could say is anti-vax, but the cumulative effect is probably going to be very similar. But what I thought was particularly interesting is, is they didn't mention that uh, Professor Staines was a member of ISAG in his bio, which is odd considering he's one of the founders of the group, Michael, and it's it's about zero COVID, so immediately relevant to what he was writing about. And, you know, he did very very kindly recently admit that the grip reporting about ISAG was correct. So, which was nice. I thrown that in. And then I noticed that one of the other members of ISAG was in the Irish Examiner talking about vaccine failure, Michael. And obviously there's, there's the science aspect of it. That to me, I, I think is not actually the interesting thing about this now. We've, I wrote a number of stories on ISAG, but ISAG have admitted the truth of two of them. One was that they shared a document looking for, you know, uncertainty, anxiety, whatever. That, I think, on its own should be enough that before a national newspaper brings you on, they ask you to explain that. Explain, and I would go farther, Gary, justify morally at a time where, just to repeat ourselves, we have heard more cant about mental health and mental health challenges and problems that people are experiencing during the the lockdown, that he should justify at that time, in that context, deliberately using language that was going to increase levels of anxiety and insecurity in the population. I think that's something he may be able to justify that according to his lights, but I think he should at least be asked to do it. And the second thing is the very first story I wrote on them. And I wanted to start light and then kind of go into the more serious one. I looked at some of the things they'd said in a letter they had sent to the Taoiseach. And they had promised the Taoiseach that if he implemented their policies, there would be no need for national lockdowns. When I asked them about that, and I talked to Tomas Ryan, I talked to a couple of others, but I also talked to Anthony Staines, who again is the person in the Irish Times. And I asked them, could they stand over that? And they all said they could. But when I asked follow-on questions, it was very clear that they had thought that was going to be the last question, because they all pretty much immediately admitted that they couldn't actually stand over it. Yes, yeah, yeah, I remember this. And they said that, you know, Tomas Ryan said that, well, of course, there would be local um, lockdowns, and if it got bad enough, you would use a national lockdown, and I don't think there's anyone in the group that would disagree with that. Staines as well said it was perfectly fair to say they couldn't stand over it. Which is to say, these people admitted to lying to the Thesha. Now, you can say it's not a terribly bad lie, that it should be understood that, you know, they are a lobby group. And when they say, if you do this, 
you won't have to do these other things. They can't, you know, they can't commit to that. That is just Mm -hmm. an aspiration. But that's not what they said. They explicitly told him something that they knew was not true for the purpose of getting him to agree with them. And again, I think that's of relevance if you're going to write in a newspaper. Yeah. So if you take both of those things, the, the two things that they've admitted by their own words, and you ignore everything else that Grip has put out, those two things on their own should be effectively disqualifying. And they're not. They're not at all. In fact, I, I heard language quoted from, I think, one of Martin's advisors in a newspaper recently. And the exact phrase used was one I saw being workshopped in the ISAG emails. Yeah. So not only does it seem to not have been disqualifying, it in fact seems to have been totally unimpactful. And the interesting thing there, I think, from Grip's perspective is that we've had people just openly complain that Grip is uh, an agent of misinformation, particularly in relation to the protests. They're saying that we were amplifying anti-vax voices, things like that. And then you just look at this and you're like, you're giving these people opinion pieces where you know these things to be true. And I know the Irish Times knows some of these things to be true because I've sent several reporters in the Irish Times some of the material we based our story on. And I've had full conversations with them about it. It is known in that organization, at least some of what we reported on can be absolutely backed up. And they have the admittance of Anthony Staines on two things that should, I would have thought, been disqualifying. And it didn't matter. It does not seem to have impacted at all. All they've done is remove ISAG from his bio. And that couldn't have been a choice Anthony Staines made. He could have requested it, but he would not have had the power to remove it from his bio. The Irish Times removed it from his bio. Then it it would be a perfectly standard thing to do. If a person was writing shall we say, an opinion piece or an expert piece in a newspaper, at the bottom of the article, there would be a small piece saying, um, Hieronymus Bosch is professor of hard sums at and is a member of this charity, that charity, and that advocacy group. That would be absolutely standard. If not, It's not even a disclaimer, but it's, it's a way that you contextualize what the person is saying so you understand that they are coming from a particular position or that there is, it's not quite even a conflict of interest, but a declaration of interest. It it would be a normal thing to do. It would not be the normal thing that a member of an advocacy group is allowed to write something without declaring their membership of that advocacy group, particularly when they're a founder of it, particularly when that advocacy group has been revealed to have, shall we say, some questionable internal systems and external systems, actually, then it is of relevance to not put it in is effectively to mislead the public. No, I'm just saying, if you or I were to write an article for the Independent of the Times about hate speech legislation or um, minimal alcohol pricing or tax certainty or vaping, it would be absolutely expected that at the bottom of the article it would mention the fact that we were both involved in the Edinburgh Institute. Because they're areas that have of interest where the Edmund Burke Institute has has published and has has campaigned, that would be absolutely normal, and I wouldn't, and it, 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 I would expect them to do so. In fact, it would be standard procedure. I just think it's oh, curious that it's not done in this case. That's that's it. I mean, I think that is the interesting thing. There are low hanging things you could do here to just act in a perfectly ethical fashion. But also, if you look at the things that have come about ISAG already, 
I was never able to get access to ISAG's deepest levels of communications, the place where they, in the other communications, said to put problematic or questionable material. Now, the fact that they would write that indicates that that material exists. Yes. So, if what's come out, I think, has been quite damaging to ISAG, if suddenly their name is getting taken off things. If you know that, and you know there's more, why would you allow these people unquestioned access to your platform while running the risk that further material comes out and then you look bad because you should have known. I think it's also, it's particularly the case when a number of perfectly reasonable people, I would say, are of the opinion that, and this is pure opinion, that's all this is, that in the last month, couple of months, ISAG's approach or ISAG's policy seems to have become fairly successful. Uh, at the political level, that they have, they seem to be being listened to in Dáil Éireann by people of very significant importance. You mentioned the uh, the use of language by people close to the Taoiseach. I can't help but notice, and, and again, obviously, this is very much just opinion, that we are now moving in, it almost feels by accident, into a kind of second level zero Covid. The kind of zero COVID, which they don't like, which they would think that they would argue that actually if we went ahead and did full zero COVID, we wouldn't have to do this. But the kind of level of control that will at least, if maintained, stop appearance uh, on the widespread uh, communication of, say, a new variant or the advent in the autumn of a fourth wave. And we've seen, for example, I was saying, I was saying to you before, Gary, we... Initially, we had the we had a target date of the the fifth of March. It became very it, it, oh, a good fortnight before that that was pushed back. No, nothing was effectively going to happen, and then and then it was sometime in April, long before that that was being pushed back. Now we're talking. Then we had talk about the beginning of May. We now have and here we are mid March, and the May figure seems to be being undermined because we fear we're hearing talk about June. And we're talking about restrictions being lifted in June, but it's all being very conditional. And it's conditional again, the data. It's conditional on the numbers on the data. And this was, this is the whole, this is the thing, is it not? It's data, not dates. Now, if it is the case that these people have become successful in communicating and convincing people at the highest levels in government, well, then the very least that, that our media can do is interrogate them and interrogate them robustly. If this, if they are now in some way part of the conversation which is influencing the policy execution and the policy rollout in this, in the, uh, the practice by the government, the, the, the third estate should be looking at them a little bit more closely than this rather than simply providing the platforms. They should be interrogated. I, I don't want to say it hasn't happened, but I'm struggling to think of a really forensic, interrogatory interview that has been done with somebody from this position there hasn't been there has been there have been questioning of these people but everyone has been very lovely and hasn't really asked many questions that would be quite pointed I'll and no one has way. sat down for like a long interview where you might just ask someone many questions one after the other I put it this way. there hasn't been a paxman 
I haven't come, haven't heard either in print or on or on radio and TV a Paxman interview without blowing one's own trumpet. I think the closest I've seen to somebody asking a series of questions is when we actually did an interview with a very reasonable, very decent uh, gentleman here on this podcast, uh, which lasted whatever it lasted, 45 minutes an hour or whatever it was. That's the closest I've come to seeing something being done of that nature. And it certainly, it wasn't hostile, it wasn't intended to be hostile, it was intended to try and understand what their position was and how they justified the various bits and pieces of that and how effective it would be and how they would, if it was practically possible. It was a, an attempt to find out what they were saying and what, 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 they, what, what they wanted to do. It wasn't in any sense an attack. Uh, it was never intended to be. But there hasn't been a Paxman, there hasn't been an Andrew Neil, there's been nothing like that. And I just think that we have to we're getting to the we're getting to a point where nobody has asked them to quanta okay, I'm rambling here, but okay, to synthesize it. Has anybody asked them to the simple question, have you done a cost benefit analysis at this point? Have you considered the costs, both to the economy and to health in non-COVID areas that continuing this policy will be. Are you absolutely confident? Can you show us that this will produce a net benefit to the nation rather than in fact produce a negative outcome? Both economic, when the economics are obvious, I mean, the, 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 the destruction to the economy has been horrendous, but even at the level of health, can they demonstrate that there is a net benefit to public health? The problem there is this. Once you make the decision without that data, and they did, they didn't have it when they made the data, the incentive is always to ensure that data never exists unless you are absolutely sure that it will back up your decision. Because if it doesn't, well, then the question becomes, well, why did you do it without that data to begin with? And I would suspect the data would not be terribly supportive of, what are we, like 180-something days of lockdown? The longest and most severe lockdown in, in Europe. Well, I don't know. I Honest to God, I don't know, Gary. Maybe it has been of benefit. Maybe we're in a better position now because of it. We have lower death rates, maybe, we, than many other countries. I mean, the death rates in lots of other parts of Europe are, 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 are quite high at the moment. There does seem to be a surge happening in other places. There are as many people dying in Europe now, according to one article I read today, as there were in the spring of last year. Maybe it has been of a benefit. I don't know. But has what is the what, what what's the calculation? What's is has the has that benefit being an, a net plus? And more to the point, whatever about the past, Gary, going forward. Is it going to continue to be a net plus when we have got a, when we have vaccinations? And by the way, on the the anti-vaxxer stuff is laughable, and I've been I've been I've had that as well. We're anti-vaxxers. I mean, God's sake! Back whenever back last summer when we were talking about vaccinations, and you were and for perfectly good reasons more skeptical about the speed at which vaccination a reasonable vaccine would be developed. And I would say on the balance of history and science, you are quite right to be. I was being blindly optimistic and it happened to come more quickly. 
But both of us were absolutely there cheering them on. Any little scrap of information that we would glean suggesting that there was good news about the vaccines, we were only delighted to report it. The notion that we are anyway anti-vax is just ridiculous. It is the number one complaint I currently get. Too much talking about vaccines and too positive about vaccines. <laughs> well, if we're wrong on both sides, we must be doing something right. I don't know. But no, I, I don't think the data is being created. I don't think there's any incentive to create the data. Do you not get the sense, Gary? I mean, I talk to people and I can absolutely understand when they say this to me. You know, do you remember there was a meme going on? Uh, oh, well, you know, it's only the same as the flu, which we never bought into, by the way. We never said that. It's only the same as the bad flu because that missed the point completely regarding the effect of a, of, of a virus exploding on the hospitals and on the ICUs and the potential to collapse the whole medical system and also the fact that it's more it was more lethal than the flu and there was long COVID and all sorts of things we didn't know, blah, etc, etc. But people would say to you, but surely if you could save one life, and the reason I think that people are saying this is because it's been presented as if this is cost-free in some weird way, even though it's obvious, I mean, it's patently obvious that there are all sorts of costs involved, both in the virus and in the lockdown. And the, the virus would, the virus we know from other countries that had far less restrictive lockdowns than ours still has a massive effect, even by itself, without regulation. The virus has a massive effect on the on economic activity anyway, because people just stop doing things and can't do things. But it's been presented this way as if there is, in some way, it's not really a cost. There is a zero cost to this. And we we brought this up before COVID. When people are talking about, you know, it will save lives and how, you know, there's no trade-off in saving lives. And people would bring up the example of uh, deaths due to drunk drivers and speeding and things. And people would say, mostly just as a point that, yes, there is clearly a line we won't cross. But if we banned cars, there would be no deaths due to road accidents. And people would go, well, that's a ridiculous thing. That would never happen. And then we got to COVID. And people went, well, you know, there'd be no car deaths if we just ban driving. And instead of going, that's a ridiculous thing, that's absolutely not worth doing, we just went, that's a winner of an idea. Yeah. And then you find 188 days later and you sort of go, you know what, maybe we should have, um, maybe we should have questioned the idea that um, there's no trade-off here. Maybe we should have done that there. But on, on data, Michael. One thing that, that I actually saw was an attempt by someone to create some data, which is larger, uh, which is worth celebrating in Ireland in any form. And it was Carl Dieter. Carl Dieter wrote in The Independent there about the protests. But what Carl did, and which is new, is Carl went out to the protests with a, uh, I'm not sure if he went out literally with a clipboard, but uh, he went out and he surveyed people there. He actually asked them. What are your political beliefs? Why are you here? You know, all of those sort of things. Yeah. You know, are you far right? Are you, you know, populist? Do you believe in conspiracy theories? And it turned out that the majority of people weren't. The majority of people there didn't vote. Amongst those who voted, and of course you're dealing with very small sample sizes, but I think he did something like 44 interviews. I'll put the actual, um, the article in the body of this so you can have a look at it. But it's got some really interesting data there. A lot of them say they wouldn't take the COVID vaccine. Some of them are anti-mask. 
but most of them aren't right-wing. Most of them don't vote at all. Some of them were, um, they would go for the Irish Freedom Party. Some were Sinn Féin. I think Sinn Féin were the second largest political party. There were a couple of people before profit heads in there. 98% said they had never, they had never had negative thoughts or interactions with an ethnic minority group. What? Okay. Well, no, it's, I, 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 it took it took me half a minute to get there. I was like, why? I was thinking, why? What? What's that got to do with COVID? Yes, of course. Yeah, you want to see if they're all a bunch of racists and Nazis. There's no. Let's see. Fifty-six percent of respondents were pro-choice. Only thirty percent said they were religious. These people don't seem to be right-wing. They don't seem to be conspiracy theorists. I mean, I'm not actually sure what the rate of um, belief in these things is amongst the general public. So maybe there is a higher level. But what they seem to have, a below average level of trust in the government and media. More than any political line, they're not far right, they're not Nazis. To a large degree, they don't seem to be religious. They're not just an outgrowth of the pro-life movement. They don't seem to be incredibly conspiratorial. But uh, they just seem to not trust what is happening. Well, I think it's a very odd, it's a very odd thing of Carl Dieter to do. I mean, surely the easiest thing to do would be just watch the protest on television and look into their hearts and divine what their motivations. Or maybe what I've also seen done is, is people go, but some of the speakers said far-right things. And then you have to sort of go, well, are the speakers representative of the audience? Because people will often speak at things in order to convince people that they are right. And also, what constitutes? It's a curious thing. Very often, you find—I found in these conversations about this issue—that these these are circular, absolutely circular arguments. Oh, we know they were far right because they said that they were suspicious of the vaccines, and that means you're far right. But I, I don't get that. I mean, it's if you're far right, you're suspicious of vaccines. You're far, you're suspicious of vaccines. You're 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 far right. I have friends who are very much on the left who are deeply suspicious of the vaccines. I think they're wrong, but I don't think there's any necessary connection between the two. Well, there may also be um, there may also be a, a wording issue with this. So 10% said they would take the vac- COVID vaccine if offered one tomorrow. And I think the phrasing of that, like if offered one tomorrow, like if someone asked me that, I think my reaction would be, well, no, give it to someone who's more at risk. If you don't code properly, comes across as, no, I wouldn't take the vaccine, as opposed to the actual t- intent is, I don't think I should be given the vaccine ahead of people who more badly need it. Still, it's a low number. Yeah, it is. And if one of them is out there and does get offered it, they don't want it, I'm here. We're not going to go through it in great detail because it's mostly just a mass of numbers. But it's interesting. And I mean, we saw with the last protest, it was far right, it was Nazi, it was whatever and i remember looking at it and just from some of the things i was hearing it was like the majority of these people if they vote are going to be Sinn Féin voters they're going to be populist but they're not going to be far right and i've seen three of these surveys now from different people at different protests and Sinn Féin has always been the number one or number two party and that's not really surprising the irish times did a poll in february and Sinn Féin had the highest amount of people who said there were too many restrictions, and they also had the highest amount of people who said there weren't enough restrictions. About a, about a third of the party went either way. That's interesting in itself. And I think it also 
Can you tell you something about Sinn Féin? I mean, that, that speaks to lots of other data we have about, uh, shall we say, tensions, cultural or ideological tensions that exist within the Sinn Féin voting bloc. So that doesn't that doesn't surprise me. But this like this is the thing. Carl went down on his his own and collected this and then pitched it to the Independent. The Independent didn't send someone down to do this. Yeah, the newspapers have. Yeah, why would you bother? So the newspapers have been perfectly happy to say incredibly derogatory things about people and stuff that we know was false. So after the last one, the first one where the firework was fired at the Gardaí, that was described as far-right violence in numerous places. Yes. And then it turned out that the um, people who were picked up for the offence were not, to summarise the words of the guards, they were not politically inclined, shall we say. (laughs) Yeah, that's a delicate way of putting it all right, isn't it? It's nicely done. It was like the guy that was found with uh, the petrol canister. And that was evidence of far-right malintent. Yeah, and then it turned out he was just a street performer who did fire poi or something. But actually, I was looking at this, and and what I was actually thinking was, I should probably get some of the, or I should ask the next time there's a moderate-sized protest, some of the grip lads to go down with clipboards and would actually just poll the crowd. It'd be interesting. Now, I can speculate that maybe the response to the more sceptical would be, well, they would say that, wouldn't they? They're aware that it is a bad thing to be X, Y, or Z. So if you ask them a question, now, I can't imagine that Carl Dieter said, are you far right? Do you believe in conspiracy theories? I don't know. I think that's, um, I think you, you, you ask a slightly more sophisticated question than that. But um, I imagine people, sceptical people on the left might say, well, they're perfectly well aware of what, they're supposed to what they're supposed to say and what not to say, so they cover it up. I mean, you could do that, but you could do that with any poll. Absolutely, yeah. I'm, I'm not saying it's true, Gary. I'm just saying that I can see that that would be a response. Well, what he actually did was he asked people about particular conspiracy theories. So he asked people about five G, and half of them said that they believed it could pose health risks. But then he clarified and he said, but that isn't the same as being a 5G conspiracy theorist. Some who answered yes qualified it by adding that masts on homes or offices are a bad idea. Nobody, as in 0%, indicated that they saw a connection with 5G to COVID-19 or population control. Okay. Well, that's a plus. And, I mean, you know, low levels of trust in government and media, that's not unusual. The trust in media has been declining for decades at this point, and... I would say largely rightfully so. There has been, shall we say, a recognition of the manufactured nature of news. It's just tangentially. I mean, I, as regards the failure in trust in, in media and just a collapse in trust generally, say, which is which might be manifest might be manifested in a reluctance of people to to be vaccinated. I, there's also an element of which just gov- different governments bollocksology has played a significant role in this. I mean, I was talking to a student of mine today, I teach, uh, uh, I do English lessons with online in Naples, and he's a nice guy, perfectly normal, stable, uh, reasonable kind of a a, a chap. He's 19, Uh, he doesn't spend a whole lot of time on the internet, Um, he's not political, he's not extreme in any way. 
And something came up about vaccines. He says, oh, well, we, nobody, nobody's going to take that AstraZeneca. That's killing people all over the place. No, you've had the French government. I mean, the French government, first of all, Macron said it was effectively useless. And then they were only going to give it, they weren't going to give it to people except over 65. And then they rolled back and they said that they were, it was safe and they're going to use it. And now the French have announced that they're only going to give it to people over 55. I mean, how, is it any wonder that people are starting to get confused about safety issues regarding vaccines? And if you become concerned about the safety issues regarding one, it's not unreasonable to suggest that some people at least are going to become concerned about safety issues more, gen, more generally. But he was a classic example. He had, he had read that on the, on the net, or I think more likely somebody he knew had read that on the net somewhere. Loads of people were dying from this. And that had been repeated. And lo and behold, this was now a fact. And this was going, if he was saying that, there were going to be hundreds of thousands of people across Italy saying the same thing. Now, in a separate issue, I'm beginning to think that there are going to be genuinely, seriously, lots of AstraZeneca vaccines left on the shelf across Europe because of a collapse in faith in it as a vaccine and the safety issues around it. And like the Belgians, I think maybe this is the opportune moment since we wouldn't ask the Americans, we won't ask the Russians. Can we at least ask for the AstraZeneca ones if they're not going to use them? Can we have them? We'll see. We we will see. On protests, actually. Did you see some of the, the British protests? I was just want to mention, you know, saying we're talking about small protests, not a small protest. No, so no one seems to have any good idea of how many people were in the last protest in London. It's thousands, some people have said tens of thousands. I have no idea. I haven't seen a single good shot of the crowd in one, but it is a lot of people. It is a lot of people that phrases like, if this gets any larger, it's going to be unpoliceable, are getting thrown around. And Britain has... I know in the last show we were talking about, Michael particularly was talking about, what do you do when COVID, when everyone, the vulnerable are vaccinated, the debt rate goes to as low as it can be. And it's not, it's not a disease that people perceive as being fatal. What happens then? And I think Britain is seeing that. They have vaccinated, I think they've administered somewhere in the region of about 26 million first doses and about 2 million, 2.5 million maybe second doses actually when you run the con the the numbers the uk on its own has done i think somewhere between 50 and 55 percent of the number total number of vaccinations carried out in the eu as a whole at, at the risk of distracting myself and you indeed from the point you're about to make i, I think it's it's worth noting that uh, only a few days ago the times ran a, a story saying conservatives may be at risk from slowdown in, in vaccine rollout. Uh, yesterday, they broke their all-time record with 660,000 vaccines doses delivered. And today, they went further and delivered 710,000. Yes, no, no, add a, add a day back, Michael, because today is Sunday. Oh, sorry, yes, of course, you're right. But on both of those days, Michael, both of those days, that was more vaccines in a day than the Irish state has vaccinated in total since the vaccination program started. And okay, there's obviously a big population difference, but we are way out of scale there. Like I was saying about Britain having 50 to 55% of the total level of vaccinations we've seen in the EU. 
The UK has a population of about 66 million. The EU has a population of 445, 450 million people off the top of my head. It's hard to describe how much better they're doing. They have done in two days, right, 1.4 million people. If at the end of April, the end of next month, we have got to that number, I will be delighted. I mean, absolutely delighted. In fact, I don't think our target is even to get to that number. And they've done that in two days. And I know, yes, it's a bit, whatever it is, it is, uh, what is it? 12 times our population? 12, 13 times our population. So if you'd, uh, okay, let's knock it down and make it 1.3. That's just for handiness. That's 100,000. So you get 1.3 million divided by, divided by 13. That gets that gets you to a hundred thousand, does it not? So that's a hundred thousand people. We equivalent of us vaccinating a hundred thousand in two days, fifty thousand a day. Multiply by seven, seven five, thirty five, three hundred and fifty thousand in a week. How many did we? How many did we do last week, Gary? What's our what's our seven day rolling total? Last week we did eighty five thousand over the week. However, this week so far from the data we have available to us. If you compare Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday of the week with the Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday of last week, we've seen a 47% reduction in vaccinations. We had the worst day we've had since they started as far back as you can go on daily data. So they started revealing it on the 9th, but you can actually go back to the 3rd. And on the 3rd, let's say the, the first Sunday we have information for, which is the 7th of February. 1,550 vaccines were given. Last Sunday, 303 vaccines were given. But it's not our fault, Gary. It's AstraZeneca's fault. But I think that the British protests, I think, are interesting because it's, it's what we were mentioning. When deaths go down and there's less, you know, there's less danger, social pressure will ease off and people will start to get very, very tired of lockdowns very, very quickly because there's, or they'll perceive there's no great reason to keep doing this and if the British protests get any bigger, British lockdown is going to go. That's just how this goes. If you're, Brit- if you're in Britain now, the chances are when somebody says to you, oh, well, you're putting granny at risk, you can say, no, I'm not. Granny's been vaccinated. Granny and granddad have been vaccinated. And if they weren't vaccinated, you'd set up an appointment for later that day or the next day. Well, chances are if they haven't been vaccinated by now, Gary, it's because they've chosen not to be. Because when I put my numbers in, and this is more than a week ago into the Northern Ireland, uh, the Northern Ireland, uh, actually, I tell you, it was, it's three weeks, because in the English version, I was told I would be vaccinated on the 8th of March. And in the Northern Ireland version of the, the calculator, they said, make an appointment today. And <laughs> I don't know, it wasn't projecting tone onto a text. It was a bit like, for God's sake, what are you at? Why haven't you been vaccinated? Make an appointment, you idiot. So that's where... Chance, granny and granddad have been vaccinated. Uncles and aunts, older uncles, have, have been vaccinated. People who are vulnerable and who have underlying disease. You're getting to the point where pretty well in, you're getting very close to all of the vulnerable people. That's not to say that there won't be people who will die. But you're getting to the point where you could say that, that the risk is not going to be dissimilar to lots of other infectious diseases that we don't lock down for. No, you get to the 
we have stopped all car accidents by banning cars part. Yeah. And people just go, yeah, there will be some deaths, but this is not sustainable. And you have to reopen. And then someone very young dies and you panic and you close down the country again, which is exactly what will happen. Yeah. And because somebody will, because people stand and point and you say, you, you, killed, you killed him. You monstrous, you killed him. And it'll be understandable, and it'll be a, it'll be a human. These will be human tragedies for the person who died, and for the person's family and friends. But it will be completely decontextualized, and it will be just a political fact rather rather than a reason that you should base your policy on. Now, as you say, I saw two or three comments from perfectly reasonable people who said, "If this gets bigger, it, exactly what you said, it will be impossible to effectively police this." And that's, an, I mean, in a country like the United Kingdom, we're not talking about France, you know, where protesting and rioting is in the genes. It's, a, it's almost, it's more a hobby and a pastime than, than anything else. This is the United Kingdom. And if you're getting to a point where it's not going to be policeable, it's very hard to see how they're going to resist. I mean, they will, to an extent. But remember, Boris, Boris gave the middle of June, didn't he, for basically... The, his target date for the, uh, the the lifting of pretty well the the, the most most of the uh, restrictions and our our own government members of our own government felt it necessary to comment skeptically about that oh well, we, how they couldn't see that that would happen so I think you have England has June the twenty first yeah but I think from twenty first of June all COVID restrictions internally gone. Nightclubs can open, I think, on the 21st. They're planning to reopen shops, outdoor hospitality, all that stuff from April. But June 21st, nightclubs. 4 and 3 are 7, 7 and 5 is 12, 12 and 13. Call it 13 weeks, more or less, right? Now, if they're, if they're, if they're knocking on, if they're knocking out uh, at the rate of like 700,000, God almighty, I mean, it, they will be there by the 21st. There, there was that um, fun thing that people were doing for a while, saying, yes, well, you see, the EU has, has given more second, there's more fully vaccinated people in the EU. I loved it, because you sort of, okay, you found something that you can cling to, but the British are going so quickly that when they hit, when they finish on the first pass, they're going to come back and do the second, and they're just going to lap us instantly. <laughs> like, they'll blow by us in a day or two regardless of how far we've got on because they are moving so much quicker uh, i mean someone sent me on an editorial in the wall street journal earlier and i'll include a link to it in this podcast as well it's called europe's gang that couldn't shoot straight a string of vaccine bungles on the continent threatens health and the global economy yeah. and obviously it's the wall street journal so their interest is the global economy and europe is doing so badly that it could be difficult for america to trade with it not terribly long. It's it's long for an editorial, and they just lamp the EU. Like it's it's pretty unmerciful. Well, they they made the fairly reasonable point that it's it, which is constantly being talked about, and in fact has been one of the defences of the EU is that the EU is interested in a global response and not in some kind of some uh, nasty uh, nationalistic version of uh, was it vaccine nationalism? The United States. Uh, has been taking part with with the United Kingdom. Uh, by the way, I just uh, on the t- just thinking like 
the the 21st uh, of June target, allowing that they don't say allowing they don't hit 700,000 or even 600,000. If they if they hit keep hitting around 500,000 a day, by the time they get the 21st, they'll keep they'll have delivered another 45 million doses, which will mean that not only will they have done the whole population once, they will be well on the way to having to be to finishing up to to going around again. So uh, the idea that we're playing the slow game, but we'll catch up. I'm sorry, folks. Not even the not even the color of it. And by the way, you know this whole thing. Obviously, it's very handy to blame AstraZeneca. That's what we've decided. It seems to do. We're blaming AstraZeneca, and then as a, we're also blaming the UK and the US for being bad people and bad civic, uh, global bad global citizens. The, in one of the reports I, uh, in the papers to the last couple of days, we made the point that even in the midst of what is a pretty dire rollout, Ireland is somewhere around the middle. We're around the middle of the whole thing. Uh, Malta is way up the top, which coincidentally, Gary, and it is purely a coincidence, bought 800,000 Pfizer doses off its own bat. That's nothing to do with the fact that it's up at the top. There, you, you, you still has like something like 115 million do- vaccine doses on hand within the EU. And so it, it, there are actually, it's not that there are no vaccines available in the EU for, for them to actually go out and start vaccinating their people. Vaccinated people. It's not only it's not just the hames they made of procurement. It's the hames they're making of the rollout as well. And ours is pretty bad, but others are even worse. The French are an absolute disaster. And it's almost as if Gary, a bunch of disparate countries organised by a scleritic bureaucracy, isn't the best way to react to an acute political or health crisis. The EU. This is the single greatest challenge I think the EU has seen in its history. And if it had gotten it right, and I had every incentive to get it right, this could have been a crowning moment of glory for them. And instead, they've led to quite a lot of preventable death, which is important to point out. They've also given Eurosceptic groups a massive stick to beat them with because of, again, all the death. And countries that were most against the idea of the federalistic EU mm-hmm. have a pretty good example that what they feared and thought would happen if the EU grew to that scale, which is just incredible ineptitude, was pretty accurate. So this is, I mean, this is something they should have absolutely pulled off, and they didn't. And it's worth, it's, well, I say it, it's worth remembering that it didn't have to be this way. This was a deliberate choice. This was an absolutely considered choice. This, that, that, that's one of the things that actually is starting to really annoy me. When government says, oh, it's a supply issue. And then the conversation stops and you sort of go, you agreed to this supply method. You were involved in negotiating the supply method. You should have known there was a problem before this happened and either secured alternatives or not agreed to this system. You don't get to make a political choice and then say, well, you know, it's out of our hands. If it's a supply issue, it's an issue you helped create anyway. It was a deliberate choice, or I suppose what I'm saying, to say we 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 will do this, we will give this responsibility to the Commission. Back in the day, we've said it before, the Netherlands, Germany, Italy, and France got together because they were concerned about the pace of the thing, and bought four hundred million vaccines. It was only as a response to that, 
that uh, health minister, the, the health various health ministries doing that in concert. Um, that the EU came involved and the Commission came involved and the heads of various governments said, no, 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 you can't do that. We're going to do it all together. It was deliberate choices. They chose it. The, the initial assumption had been that this and the practice was going to be that this was going to be organised state by state basis, which is not to say that they couldn't have purchased under some kind of umbrella group, which is what the 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 four countries did. And you know what? I have a suspicion, and maybe it's wrong, maybe it is completely wrong, that if you had left this, the framing of the contract, say Ireland decided, can we, lads, can we get involved in your umbrella group? Uh, and then maybe the Czechs and the, the Poles and the Bulgarians and all the Eastern Europeans, the Middle Europeans would have done their own thing and whatever. But there would have been a, a couple of umbrella groups, people who joined. And the, the framing of the contracts and the negotiations of the contracts would have been left up to, say, somebody in Berlin or in Amsterdam. I have a feeling that they might have done a better job. Anyway, as I said, we're trying desperately to get get out of this podcast, so and 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 let, and let the decent people out as well. So again, we should be back on Wednesday. Mind yourselves. All the best.